Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. And I'm Grace Wan. This is your weekly conversation about where we live. And what matters most. We are live. And we are local. Every Monday night. Right here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. My co-host Grace Wan is off for the night. Tonight we'll be talking to Michael Corrin, climate coach columnist for the Washington Post. And later in the program, we'll talk to Jocelyn Rose Lyons, director of the new documentary called Stand, about pro basketball phenom Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, who was driven out of the NBA because of controversial stances he took as a Muslim. But first, let's get the latest from Josh Kane, senior reporter at the San Francisco Standard, who's been covering the scandal surrounding a major nonprofit provider of services to San Francisco's homeless. So over the past few months, the United Council of Human Services, or UCHS, formerly known as Mother Brown's Dining Room in Bayview's Hunter's Point, has received quite a bit of negative press. Over the past two decades, the UCHS has received tens of millions of dollars in federal and city grants, but its use of those funds has been poorly documented at best, and at worst, there have been allegations that the CEO, Gwendolyn Westbrook, has been using some of that grant money for personal purposes. So here to help us understand the current situation is senior reporter for the San Francisco Standard, Josh Kane. Welcome to State of the Bay, Josh. Hey, Josh, do we have you? Hmm? Hello, Josh, you there? I am here. Can you hear me? Great. Yes, we've got you. So, yeah, thank you for joining us on State of the Bay, Josh. And we know you've been following the story closely. UCHS has been a major recipient of city and federal funds for decades to serve San Francisco's homeless. But now with these allegations of misappropriation of funds, this, these allegations have been out there for a number of months now. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So at uh, in November of last year, the city controller uh, put out a report uh, in co- coordination with the city attorney's office, and it found that United Council of Human Services was not in compliance with a number of regulations they have for city nonprofits. Uh, UCHS has received about $28 million in city and federal grants in more recent years, and it found that basically it was not doing basic work when it came to documenting its expenses, uh, documenting uh, people who are uh, supposed to go through a coordinated entry program for uh, receiving shelter and housing. And in, a, in essence, it wasn't just that they're not doing a great job of, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's, but they also were finding issues of people uh, potentially living in these places without any documentation and also uh, a mismanagement of funds. So uh, the city attorney and city controller wrote a letter referring the organization for criminal investigation to the district attorney's office and the FBI. Mm -hmm. So I want to get into some of those allegations, but I guess first I'd love to get more details on what UCHS was contracted to do for the homeless. Can you describe a a bit about what their roles were? Yeah. So UCHS is is kind of the evolution of an organization that you mentioned earlier, uh, Mother's Mother Brown's dining room. And they do everything from providing shelter for homeless people here in the city to providing meals and other services. Uh, they also have a uh, RV camp over at Pier 94 that provides uh, housing for people in these recreational vehicles or trailers. Um, what I found uh, in following up on the report by the controller's office was that uh, Gwendolyn Westbrook, the CEO of this organization, was not only 
giving uh, housing away to people that potentially didn't go through or did not go through the coordinated entry program. But uh, a good amount of these people, she said about 20 of them were her family, friends and employees, uh, which would obviously be raising red flags. I spoke with the fiscal sponsor, the organization that is basically facilitating the, these grants, these nonprofit grants. And this organization, just after two months, uh, they, they came on as a fiscal sponsor, which is usually used for nonprofits that or organizations that technically cannot uh, qualify as a nonprofit for a variety of reasons. Uh, this fiscal sponsor wanted to get out of this whole deal just after two months because they realized mm -hmm. there were some major concerns and, and, and over the course of last year, uh, the city had to basically plead with this fiscal sponsor to stay there because there is such a lack of uh, organizations doing work in the Bayview. Uh, and so they wanted to do whatever they could to keep things afloat. But obviously, the situation has just deteriorated over the course of the last year. Yeah, well, it definitely sounds very disturbing. So you just mentioned how potentially some family members are using these uh, dwellings that were supposed to be for uh, people who are unhoused. What what are some of the other allegations, and particularly in, in the letter you just mentioned, and and also in uh, in the lawsuit that was just filed a few weeks ago? Yeah, so you mentioned the lawsuit. A former employee of United Council of Human Services is suing uh, the organization. Uh, which actually, I should note, also is not a nonprofit, uh, technically, because it had its charity status revoked last summer by the state attorney general's office for noncompliance. Um, basically, this former employee was accusing uh, Gwendolyn Westbrook of basically misusing funds and bragging about a pretty lavish lifestyle in which she was uh, accused of buying multiple vehicles for herself and her uh, family members. Uh, she was accused of driving around town with a trunk full of high-priced jewelry. Uh, she was accused of basically overlooking one of her family members causing issues uh, in this uh, Pier 94 RV camp. Uh, the allegations include uh, this family member allegedly uh, doing drugs, uh, giving away trailers to drug dealers, uh, facilitating prostitution at the uh, shelter, so the range of accusations are pretty wild. Um, however, uh, these are things that uh, I was also told by others uh, who were close to the organization and uh, the city's investigation. So um, there's a lot more to come on that. And right now they are just allegations, but it, it does seem that there's some major, major issues with the United Council of Human Services. Yeah. And was there evidence submitted to back up any of these allegations that you've seen? You know, there there is not necessarily a, a whole range of discovery at this point. The claim was just filed uh, earlier this month, I should say the complaint. And so um, there's a lot more to come in the lawsuit. As far as documentation, I would actually say that uh, one of the major issues with this organization, United Council of Human Services, is that there just isn't a lot of documentation. Uh, in talking to city officials and talking to the former fiscal sponsor, of the uh, organization, uh, the main thing was they couldn't corroborate a lot of the claims coming from the CEO because supposedly there just is not a, a paper trail. Mm -hmm. And how has the city of San Francisco responded to all of this, as well as to complaints that the nonprofits that are entrusted to provide these services to our most vulnerable residents are mishandling these funds, potentially, right? Allegedly. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, the city, uh, obviously, some city officials have been more alarmed than others. Uh, there is a, a genuine belief that, you know, we have a lot of good nonprofit actors in the city who are doing good work and and really trying to address some of the major crises around homelessness, uh, drug addiction, um, housing. Uh, however, I would also note that the city itself has been asleep at the wheel in many ways. Uh, in uh, December, a colleague of mine, Noah Boston, uh, he and I found that San Francisco gave away more than $25 million to dozens of charities that were actually already blocked by state law from receiving or spending funds because they had had their charitable status either suspended, revoked, or tagged as delinquent by the state attorney general's office. So uh, in some ways, uh, you could say that actually, yeah, the nonprofits uh, do owe us uh, a responsibility to be fiscally responsible with taxpayer money, uh, but we should also probably be turning uh, the microscope right back on the city officials who have not done a good enough job monitoring these contracts and getting uh, real metrics on performance outcomes. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking to Josh Kane, senior reporter at the San Francisco Standard, about allegations of misuse of funds with San Francisco's non-contracted nonprofit UCHS, uh, working to serve uh, unhoused community members here in San Francisco. Well, Josh, what are some of the reforms that the city could put in place that could provide oversight here? It seems like this kind of thing shouldn't be happening, especially if you have nonprofits that have already raised some red flags with the state, for example. Yeah, I think a a big part of this is that some of this is just common sense, right? Just don't give money to organizations that are not eligible by state law to be receiving those funds. Um, A new policy was issued by the city controller, city attorney, and city, city administrator's offices and they basically have given new guidance to the departments that have contracts with uh, nonprofits that are out of compliance. And they basically have given them 30 days to create a transition plan for these uh, charities. Uh, the departments can either transfer the services to another city nonprofit supplier or nonprofit, uh, or they can develop, develop an action plan uh, to get them into good standing by June 30th. And, and if that doesn't happen, the city can either, uh, you know, decide that they just want to get be done with the contracts and, and there will be no more new purchase orders done. That's just a, a basic kind of bureaucratic side. Uh, on the legislative side, uh, Supervisor Asha Safai has introduced uh, legislation to basically codify some of these guidance rules um, to make sure that basically Uh, No contracts are ever given to organizations that are ineligible by state law to be receiving those funds. Uh, And then just to add to the level uh, of response that's going on, Supervisor Catherine Stephanie had a hearing earlier this month for the Government Audit and Oversight Committee uh, to look at performance outcomes uh, and see how the city can do a better job in tracking and streamlining the monitoring process. So uh, there's multiple levels of this, but obviously when a city gives $1.4 billion to 600 plus nonprofits, there needs to be, needs to be a very robust oversight uh, program in place. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think that these proposed measures are gonna be enough to address the problem or do you feel like more is going to be needed? You know, I, I think it's a start, uh, and I think there have been efforts uh, in, in already going back to last year as well with Proposition C, which was a ballot measure to create a new uh, oversight commission for the Homelessness and Supportive Housing Department. Um, 
Yeah, at the very least, we should be expecting more due diligence on the front end before issuing these contracts. Um, But I also think, you know, it it requires uh, city departments to take a little bit more initiative. I I know for my own work, uh, my colleagues and I have kind of been doing some reporting on nonprofits and, and really trying to to gauge whether or not we're getting enough bang for our buck when it comes to taxpayer money being thrown at issues. Uh, San Francisco has got kind of a reputation for just throwing money at problems and not necessarily getting the progress we would hope to achieve. So um, as far as, you know, restoring public trust and making sure that we're doing things as we should, uh, that's a long process and and there's no expectation that we're going to solve uh, the many crises that the city has overnight. Um, But I think, you know, step-by-step with these new uh, guidance efforts, with new legislation, with stronger oversight, uh, you would hope that we can actually make some progress. And do you think this is going to undermine the public support for these kinds of programs? I mean, the people in the city do pride themselves on being very compassionate towards the homeless, but do you think there's going to be some long-term political effects from this type of scandal? You know, I I think uh, residents, taxpayers uh, have every right to be uh, skeptical of whether or not we're getting the best use of taxpayer dollars. We've seen uh, over years that the uh, crises around homelessness and drug addiction uh, have, if not gotten worse, at the very least, it doesn't feel like they're getting a whole lot better. Um, I think also, though, San Francisco has put itself a bit in a bind where the through bureaucracy, through uh, varying levels of overlapping legislation, uh, we've got so much red tape. We've got so many issues when it comes to building housing, when it comes to addressing uh, crises that are in some ways counterproductive um, uh, as far as our responses that that really the nonprofits in this city actually in some ways are the only cost effective way to even try and address the crises we have in San Francisco. So um, we, it's okay to be skeptical. It's okay to demand more, uh, but we also, you know, kind of have to just admit that, you know, this is probably one of the few avenues we have to really try and make progress because unfortunately city departments have not shown that they are, efficient enough to get the job done. Mm -hmm. Well, along those lines, is there evidence or do you have a suspicion that this same lack of oversight potentially is plaguing other aspects of the city's contracting outside of even just providers for homeless services? Is this something that might go deeper in terms of how San Francisco's government is structured and lack of oversight potentially? You know, I, I, I couldn't necessarily point you to one thing and say, oh, you know, this is a, a great example of just the systemic rot. Um, I do think that absolutely when you have a budget as large as San Francisco's, which is uh, around 14, 13 to 14 billion dollars, um, you would hope that we could actually make some kind of progress uh, compared to what we've seen uh, in recent years. So. Um, I, I don't want to necessarily cast any aspersions, but I do think that, you know, when there's this much money going around, uh, there definitely needs to be uh, really thorough monitoring uh, for compliance and really just like setting better policy outcomes. I think one of the issues that I've found in, in going through uh, these uh, nonprofits, and we're going to continue to publish stories in the coming weeks here, is just uh, so much inconsistency and in, in really just trying to say, 
you know, not only are we going to fund these organizations that have a worthwhile mission, uh, but like, let's actually set some really clear goals that that really and hold these organizations accountable for their achievements. And, and and I'll have a story coming out in the next week that shows kind of the discrepancies we have when it comes to tracking progress versus just outreach. And it's one thing to do outreach to communities that are in need, uh, but it's another thing to actually be able to show that the good work is actually having results. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll look forward to that story. And we really appreciate you joining us and explaining what you found so far. We'll definitely keep an eye on this story as well. But I just want to thank you for joining us. Josh Kane, senior reporter at the San Francisco Standard. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ethan. You have a great night. All right. Coming up next on State of the Bay, we'll talk to the new climate advice columnist for The Washington Post, Michael Corrin. That's right after this break. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we want you to be a part of this next conversation. We're going to be talking to Washington Post climate advice columnist Michael Corrin about the decisions we make every day that influence our carbon footprint. So give us a call with your questions or comments. We're at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also send us a message on Twitter at State of Bay. So as climate change heats up the planet, most of us are wondering, what can I do? The Washington Post's climate coach, Michael Korn, digs into the data to give evidence-backed advice and some thoughtful analysis about what matters most to protect the planet, the climate, and each other. So Michael Korn, welcome to State of the Bay. Thank you. Great to be here. So your column debuted just in January last month, and the tagline is down-to-earth advice for life on our changing planet. Can you tell us a bit how your column came to be? Are you the first climate advice columnist? (laughs) I'm the first one at the Post. I'm not sure I'm the first ever in the world. Um, But it came to be, I think there was... um, you know, the post was was looking for a way to give people a sense uh, in their daily life, as well as you know, as part of the larger community, what what can be done. Um, and so much uh, coverage, and I felt this way too, has been about the problem, or has been very abstracted towards institutions. And in fact, a lot of the problem and solution, uh, particularly, is actually decided at the kitchen table. Um, and so, I think we both came to that conclusion. I started a newsletter called Hot House um, that dealt dealt with that, and then uh, headed over to the Post. All right. And your how has your column been received so far? I imagine you're hearing from readers all over the country who are checking out the Washington Post. We've had a great response. Um, we've gotten thousands of uh, emails and comments um, and asking a lot of these main these questions. Um, so the first couple of stories uh, did did very well, and I think we found an audience we never expected. Well, I know that you're based here in San Francisco, and I imagine that the Bay Area attitudes around climate change are pretty different from what you might find from, say, the, the median American yeah. out there in, in the in the broader country. So how yeah. do you manage that aspect of it, being based in the Bay Area, but trying to speak to an audience that you know is maybe not as convinced of the science on climate change or, or not as aware of some of the uh, environmental needs and, and steps that can be taken? Yeah, you know, we found, we actually looked at the data and we found that our audience is 
all over. And the coast, while a large portion, a, a lot of people um, are writing and, and responding from elsewhere. So, you know, I think the last week alone, I, I, we got emails from, you know, running Reindeer Ranch in Alaska, from Florida, from Hamilton, Ohio. And they're asking very similar questions, actually. So I think there's really this desire to find ways wherever people are to do something. Um, the context might change, but I think that the questions actually are relatively similar. And how do you address or do you address this issue of folks who deny the the science around climate change? Are you just basically kind of ignoring them or are you trying to couch your <laughs> advice in a way that might reach people, you know, of all different, you know, beliefs and, and level of understanding around the science? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So I think there's a, a, a an overstatement of actually how many people don't believe in, in climate change. Uh, it's down, I believe, uh, below 20, 10%. Um, and I think that number has been shrinking every year, uh, according to the uh, EL research. And, you know, at this point, I'm, I'm really trying to speak to the 80 or 90% of people who do understand that this is a problem and, and maybe the smaller percentage, but still the majority who actually want to do something. Um, so it really hasn't been too hard, I think, to reach those folks. And, uh, and we don't always have to frame this in terms of climate change. A lot of these things are the right thing to do for your pocketbook, the right things to do for your comfort in your home. Um, so the climate lens is just sort of one way to get at a lot of these questions. So I, I know you just started it in January, but I'm wondering if you have any favorite columns yet to date, any any subjects that were particularly surprising to you that you might want to talk about now <laughs> at some length. Um, yeah, well, you know, the first one, how we're using our appliances like it's 1970, I think struck a chord with millions of people because they got very, very engaged on this one. And um, I, I heard from a lot of people in my own family, because we've been having these debates for a long time is like, how do you use the dishwasher? How do you actually use the air conditioner? And in many cases, we've been doing this the wrong way. Um, because our assumptions are, are very outdated. Um, and so I think that was a good actually metaphor for a lot of the, the things that we're up against. Um, mm -hmm. Similarly, our, our cars, that, that the, I did a column about how electric vehicles are going to be the largest battery we ever own, and many of them will be capable of powering our house for days on end. Um, so it really changes the calculus of what, um, how we should build the grid over the next 10 or 20 years and what we should expect from our vehicles um, because they're going to be our battery, they're going to be our backup, they're going to be a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we can talk about that one. I am curious as well about the appliance one, but we can uh, chat about that in a bit. But in terms of the the batteries in our vehicles, I mean, this is something you hear a lot about in terms of the reliability of the electricity grid, particularly as we mm -hmm. want to move to all electric buildings and so forth. So what exactly would have to happen to unlock all that potential in the batteries that folks who now currently drive an electric vehicle, you know, might be able to tap into to actually power their homes off of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So uh, not much, as it turns out. Uh, a lot of this is a software upgrade and then uh, a charger on your wall that's capable of what's called bi-directional. So power can flow into the vehicle and then out of the vehicle. Um, and so in many cases, the cars that are rolling off the assembly lines right now have um, the necessary hardware built in and soon software to become a home backup battery, meaning that when the power goes out, uh, it will be able to power your house uh, for days on end. And then the next step would be actually to allow it to triage. So, um, uh, so when uh, when the when prices are high, uh, you can actually discharge from your your, your vehicle, and when prices are low, you can actually recharge. Um, and so we're we're already seeing that happen. The F one hundred and fifty that just came out called the Lightning is already capable of doing that, and most other vehicles, I imagine, the next two or three years will be as well. Mm -hmm. so 
that could really help address this resiliency issue and electricity grid going out. And I think provide a real extra value for folks who end up getting an electric vehicle, knowing they could also power their, their houses with it. So good to know what that is a relatively simple fix, but uh, we're not quite yeah. there yet. Um, I wanted to follow up with your comment around the first column you did on replacing appliances. Can you get into some of the details there? Which appliances were you talking about? And you know, what were some of the steps that you recommended people take to have more energy efficient, cleaner appliances? Sure. Um, well, you know, I think the, the biggest misconception people have uh, is that <laughs> turning off your lights is the most important thing you can do. You know, for the last 30 years, that's no, the number one thing on surveys when people ask, what is the, the what do you do to conserve energy and turn off the lights is one of them. And you should turn off the lights if you're not using them. That's, that hasn't changed. But the reality is, is that since LEDs have been widely distributed, um, lighting is now kind of a rounding error on most people's energy budgets. And so um, what has really transformed in the last few years is that a lot of our appliances have just gotten much smarter and much more efficient. So take the dishwasher. Um, you know, typically, I think most people assume you got to pre-rinse and you, you, you should, you know, rinse. You should only use it when it's full. Um, but in fact, modern dishwashers only use about three, sometimes two gallons of water to wash an entire load. Um, and they're smart in the sense that they have sensors that actually detect how dirty is the water at any given time? And so they use the just amount of right amount of heat and water to rinse whatever is in there. Um, so pretty much if you're washing by hand, unless it's just one person, you're not beating your dishwasher. Um, so it's sometimes it's better to actually rely on your appliances. Yeah, I was pretty surprised. I did have a chance to check out the home. I was surprised at how inefficient it could be to hand wash dishes. So that's a good excuse for me as the primary dishwasher in my household to <laughs> use the appliance more often. I thought it was a pretty surprising finding. And you don't need to you don't actually need a pre-rinse. Like the the way they're designed today with very few exceptions, you can just put them in there. All right, good to know as well. See, handy tips here from the uh, the, uh, the climate advice columnist. We're talking to Michael Corrin from the Washington Post. Well, we have an email in from Jennifer who writes that she keeps seeing ads for, quote, free solar panels. And she's wondering if that's for real or are there still rebates available in California? And if so, are some providers more reliable than others? So, Michael, I don't know if you get into the weeds on solar providers, but is this a topic that either you have covered or plan to cover? What do you tell people around solar panels on their homes? That's a great question. I mean, I think this is all wrapped up with energy efficiency and solar. And the, the, I think the question is like, is anything, is this free? Can you really get this without paying for it? And the reality is, 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 in a way, uh, what's happening is that there are financing models that you can get be paid. You don't have to pay anything up front. It'll be entirely financed. Uh, and then you essentially are paying back um, the cost of those panels with the savings that you have on your utility bill. Um, and so there are a number of companies that will do that for you and have proven to be relatively good investment, sometimes a very good investment, depending on where you live and how much you spend on electricity. Um, energy efficiency upgrades, I'm in the middle of a bunch right now, are very similar uh, in that there are now companies that will come in and look at, you know, you have a, a furnace, um, a water heater, uh, insulation, sometimes other uh, appliances, and by making them more efficient, uh, you can actually um, pay, pay them back in a number of years or never pay anything up front uh, and just have the company itself finance it. So I wouldn't recommend that across the board, but they do exist and it, it is possible. Mm-hmm. Well, and a lot of a lot of these things that you were talking about, switching out appliances, solar panels, you know, for folks who are renting, that's going to be a lot more challenging. Or if you own, even in a city like San Francisco, you may not have access to the roof if you're in a multifamily building. So what do you tell renters who are going to be in a different situation on some of these very practical 
uh, pieces yeah. of advice on how to make your home more climate friendly? That's a great question. And I've been renting for a, a number of decades until recently. And um, there aren't as many things, but there are some things. Um, and so, for example, heat pumps, there is no need. Uh, you can actually get heat pumps that sit in your window, similar to uh, you know, an outdoor AC unit. Um, that will serve very similar functions. Um, composting is another thing that's been happening. I know in San Francisco, obviously, we have municipal, but in many cases, there are new ways to compost that are in uh, indoors. Um, there are some appliances that actually dehydrate the food, and then you can actually then take that out, or um, there's uh, smaller worm bins and other things I wrote about recently. So um, I will be doing a whole series on renters, actually, so I'm, I'm getting to those soon. Um, but yes, you're right. Those, those opportunities are less. All right, good. Well, so we're previewing a, a future future column. Um, yeah. And then uh, I wanted to go to another uh, listener who wrote in. This is Sean, who, who writes in that uh, Sean would like to know whether there are rebates for artificial turf, uh, which I think is ultimately an issue around uh, drought and drought tolerance. And I know that artificial turf rebates are going to vary you know, by different uh, water utility districts. But uh, curious your response to folks who want to do these sort of water saving types of improvements like artificial turf how does that affect climate you know if at all in terms of reducing your carbon footprint Uh, and what do you tell folks who want to do some of these upgrades to reduce their water usage yeah that's a great question i mean we haven't done that column yet um and there these rebates differ so much from place to place um and so it is hard to give sort of a universal answer um i know you know here in the bay area and some other cities there are rebates essentially to take up cement and put in the equivalent of rain gardens so these are places that can absorb water um and actually um improve uh, the carbon footprint of of whatever area you're in uh, i don't know specifically on artificial turf it's just very location specific um but i will i will probably be doing something similar to that one of my next columns will be on climate victory gardens so uh, victory gardens were promoted in world war ii um for both food self-sufficiency uh, and so we're looking at that from a climate perspective soon. Great. Well, maybe you're getting some article ideas from some of the callers here. We appreciate these emails coming in. If you're just tuning in, this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we're talking to Washington Post climate advice columnist Michael Korn about navigating the decisions we make every day that impacts our carbon footprint. What questions do you have for Michael or what tips do you have or you want to share for listeners? If you've taken some steps to reduce your carbon footprint, we would love to hear from you. You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also email us your questions or comments at stateofthebay at KALW.org. We're also on Twitter at State of Bay. Well, let me go to another listener question. This is uh, Sandra emailing to ask about cloth diapers versus disposables. She says normally she would think cloth would be more environmentally friendly, but is that true during a drought? So, Michael, do you get into the diaper debates at all? <laughs> um, yes. So this has been a, a longstanding debate, um, and essentially there's no clear winner. Um, unfortunately, you know, when you do the life cycle analysis, meaning look at each one of those options and then look at the energy and resource impact, there's a lot of pros and cons and trade-offs for one might be more energy intensive. One might be more water intensive. So for, for cloth, obviously you're using a fair amount more water. Um, we use compostable here. That was kind of the trade-off we make. Um, but I would say that there's actually no one answer. And, uh, that is one of these areas where I think people get 
you know, I think hung up on a lot of the details and that's totally understandable, but um, it's really kind of uh, something that you've got to make your own personal decision on what the trade-offs are going to be. Hmm. It almost reminds me of the Christmas tree debate a little bit, you know, you got an artificial tree or a real tree and, you know, depending on how much you plan to use the tree, that can affect things. So I, I imagine maybe there's something similar there. Although I've also heard cloth diapers help you sometimes help you potty train a child faster, but I guess that's probably up for debate as well. But uh, thank you, Sandra, for the diaper question. And Michael, I wanted to ask you about one of your columns that really struck me, which was, was one of your first columns about around green burials and mm-hmm. how people are really changing their views on how they want their bodies to be treated at the end of their lives. Can you talk about green burials and, and what that involves? Sure. Um, so, you know, we started off with everyone had a green burial uh, until not that long ago. Um, but around the Civil War, uh, we started embalming bodies. Um, and then that involved caskets and very sort of resource intensive rituals. And that is now considered, a, you know, the, the traditional funeral, uh, along with cremation, which is actually another recent uh, invention. And both of them have only become really popular in the last hundred years or so. Um, and so the column itself was looking at the various options that are available to us and, you know, what the relative impact is. And there's there's really everything out there. You have the choice now of freeze-drying, um, composting, uh, something called uh, alkaline hydrolysis, which is using a basic, essentially, lye to dissolve the body. So it's like a water cremation. Um, and you know, the, it was very clear, like the, the emissions and the impact from the, from conventional funerals and caskets, as well as uh, cremation are, are much higher. Um, and these other newer options, uh, have a significantly less emissions and also can in many cases be beneficial, um, since you're essentially returning nutrients, uh, back into the environment. Um, but also at the very end, and I think this is true in many ways is, no matter how green your funeral is, it's really just 1% of all the emissions over your lifetime. And so, um, you know, the, the focus it should very much be about how you live and how you die might be a nice way, you know, to comment on that life. But it's not, uh, it's certainly not the, the most important thing. Hmm. Well, really fascinating stuff. And I know it's starting to be legalized, right? Green burials uh, in different That's states. Right. Yeah. So we you have to actually caller- be- go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, no, finish up. That's okay. I was going to say, you could actually, yeah, it's already legal to be buried uh, in your backyard in in like 45 states, I believe. And so some of the newer techniques are not that different from that. All right. Interesting stuff. So let's go to the phone lines. We have Dara calling in from San Francisco. Dara, welcome to State of the Bay. Thank you very much. I was wondering if there was any help available for Victorian houses that are not listed, like new windows or whatever to keep them up. All right, Dar, great question for you know these sort of historic Victorian houses. Michael, are there rebates for these kinds of energy efficiency upgrades in, uh, in, a, in a house like a Victorian in San Francisco? Yeah, that's a great question. So the um, Inflation Reduction Act is actually uh, probably an unprecedented uh, a policy around incentives. So about $14,000 of incentives are available for electrification, energy efficiency upgrades. This includes things like what you might put in a Victorian for um, leaks, for windows, doors, insulation, upgrading your, your panel, adding solar panels, um, you name it. So uh, the best way to do this is to actually go to some place called Bayren, B-A-Y-R-E-N. Uh, and they are essentially consolidating a lot of these options and service providers. And several of them will come in, give you an energy audit, and then kind of help you through this process depending on what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sh- Michael, I should ask also, th- some of those credits are 
dependent on your income. Is that correct? I know the Inflation Reduction Act is meant to give bigger rebates and tax credits to lower income people in specific polluted neighborhoods. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, so you can have uh, the most incentives for folks who have lower middle income. In some cases, you'll be getting almost some of these appliances and installations for free. Um, and then, you know, as you move up the income ladder, uh, less so, but it's never been this good a deal, essentially, to do energy efficiency upgrades. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Dara, thank you for calling in with that question. And Michael, you had mentioned composting and some of the do's and don'ts, don'ts there. Can you uh, talk a bit about, from an urban composting perspective, what you recommend? I'm <laughs> sure. So um, there's some very interesting options that have arrived recently. Um, first, if you have access to municipal uh, composting, that's a great one. You should do that. That's very easy. Um, but more recently, um, the ones that have come out and ones that I use actually, uh, the vermiculture. So you can have very small, these are essentially worm composting farms. These are essentially trays. Uh, in my case, I have like a, a large cone. Uh, and as you put one to two pounds of uh, food waste in those, at least in mine, uh, the worms eat that, turn that into compost within a few months or sometimes weeks if it's uh, very fast. And you can have a steady supply. Um, so vermiculture is one, but that's a little, you know, a little bit of work. The more recent ones that have been uh, popularized, one is something called the green cone. It's actually just goes into the ground, uh, has a perforated basket, and then a cone on top. And it uses natural microorganisms in the soil as well as heat. And it essentially digests all that uh, organic matter uh, into the soil. And so you don't get a lot of compost out of it, but you actually can just keep your food scraps out of your trash and produce um, great you know, uh, nutrients in that backyard area. It's very small. And then there's appliances. There's actually a new set of appliances that are coming out that are essentially food dehydrators. So you put in your scraps, it heats it up, grinds it up, takes out the water, and you end up with a very small amount of food particles that can then be used. In this case, a company will actually take it back from you and use it for livestock uh, feed. And that both uh, avoids the emissions problem from food rotting in landfills and also displaces um, uh, feed that would normally go to feed livestock and poultry. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we have a uh, question from Rick uh, going back to our discussion around appliances. And Rick emails to ask when it comes to deciding whether to repair or replace an appliance, is there a certain priority list of which appliances have the bigger carbon footprint? So dishwasher yeah. versus washing machines versus hot water heater. Where should we start when it comes to thinking about repairing or replacing? That's a, a great question. Um, and this is, I think, true in all, across the board, which is like, you know, most of 80% of your emissions benefit come from 20% of the actions. So in this case, about half of the energy in your house goes to heating and cooling it. So if you have chance, you would want to spend that on your furnace, you switch, switch to a heat pump, and then add any insulation. Um, that alone will take care of a lot of uh, your energy uh, profile. And then the next set of appliances to worry about are anything that touches water. So it's your dishwasher or your water heater in particular. Um, Those tend to be much more energy intensive than the rest. And heat pump options uh, exist for water heaters now. Uh, Similarly, your clothes dryer, your washing machine, uh, you can get um, heat pump options for that. And just more or less, um, the, the kind of bigger picture is that the modern appliances are much more efficient than ones even 10 years ago. Um, and so if you are kind of nearing the end of your life of an appliance, it actually does make sense to replace those. And they tend to get recycled if they get picked up by a responsible service provider. 
All right. Well, thanks for that information. And Rick had another question on a different subject that I want to go. I'm going to go back to Rick with this one by email. So he he also asked about how we should think about air travel and should we be thinking about getting to places in, in other ways or not going? <laughs> and how, how do we address the issue of air travel? I know for a lot of people, even though it's from a global perspective, not the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions, for a lot of people on an individual basis, flying is mm-hmm. often one of the most carbon intensive things they can do. That's right. That's right. It is. And then this is the subject of a number of columns. The next one that's coming out um, next week. So the first one is really going to look at something called sustainable aviation fuel. When you really look at the aviation sector, a lot of the a lot of critics say there is no sustainable way to fly today. Um, there is no carbon free way to do so. Um, the best the best um, sort of option is something called sustainable aviation fuel, which tends to be uh, a drop-in replacement for jet fuel. Uh, right now, most of it is being produced from waste oils, so French fry or cooking oil, things like that, that's refined into what is kerosene that gets burned. Uh, in fact, if you fly out of Los Angeles uh, airport, you're, you're using a very small amount of that sustainable aviation fuel called SAF. Um, but it's very, very small relative to the actual consumption uh, in the aviation industry, something like less than 0.1%. And so the chances of us getting to 100% uh, in, in the near future is very small. So I would say that there is starting to become some options. Um, offsets, I think, are you know a very mixed bag, um, but it may be the only thing we have at the moment. Um, and then not flying, honestly. You know, flying as much, either one, uh, is is probably our best you know, most sure solution, but the industry says it's moving to 100% SAF um, within the next few decades. So we'll see how that shakes out. All right. Well, some uh, some good preview then of a forthcoming column and some helpful tips there on aviation. So this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkine, and we're talking to Washington Post climate advice columnist Michael Korn about everyday things you can do to reduce your carbon footprint. And if you have questions for Michael, you can join the conversation by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or email any questions to us at stateofthebay at KALW.org. Well, Michael, I know that your column also has uh, a certain segment entitled Tracking Biden, where we can see how the Biden administration is doing on uh, various climate initiatives. So what is your take on how the president is doing so far on climate? <laughs> um, well, there's been, you know, I think that the Inflation Reduction Act is going to to be looked, at, looked back on as the largest climate bill ever passed, uh, probably of any country. Um, and it remains to be seen exactly, you know, how things shake out. But if you had to just look at one thing, that would be um, certainly the crowning achievement so far. Um, and there have been, you know, a lot of other um, policies have been put in place. Uh, and often these are not not well known, but things uh, in the Department of Energy, um, they have a loan program that they're very quickly putting out um, large scale investments that we won't see the results of for the next 20, 10 years, five years, sometimes 20 years. So I think it remains to be seen exactly what impact we'll have. But the amount of money and attention being uh, paid by this administration, uh, especially on climate, has been unprecedented. Mm-hmm. And Michael, I know you've been writing about environmental issues for, for many years now. Is there anything that you've learned in writing this current column that's really surprised you that you didn't expect to, to learn or find out? Um, yeah, it's a great question. I you know, it's still early, um, but there are so many people who are trying to do the right thing 
not just as you know as individuals, but also as you know part of a larger society, and they feel stymied because there's a lack of clear and, and simple advice, and um, sometimes there just isn't a right or wrong answer. And I think what I'm trying to do, and and what I, I think people would like would have responded to is this um, you know very honest accounting, this this honest exploration of the evidence. And taking that wherever it leads and then trying to find ways that um, as individuals, we can have an impact, but also how do we fit into bigger systematic change? And so mm-hmm. um, that's something that continue, I continually return to. One of the examples is solar panels so that researchers in 2021 looked at the greatest predictive factor for people installing solar panels on their roofs. And while subsidies and geography and policy were important, the most powerful factor was whether a neighbor had solar panels and that was true even there was a proximity effect. So the closer you were to a neighbor with the solar panels, the more likely you were to install them. So I, I do think there's a lot of changing norms here. That is the most important thing going forward, not just, you know, what you might do in your, your life, in your home, but what do you do in public? How do you talk about this? What do you show others in, in your actions and, and beliefs? Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, I think you're raising an, an important kind of theme here, which is, you know, what are the limits of individual steps versus societal change. I mean, a, a lot of what you're describing, you know, in terms of taking advantage of rebates and appliances, you know, electric vehicle batteries, and even the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, these were, you know, large scale policies that had to get passed first, you know, to really create a, a systemic change. And there, and I think it does point to some extent to limits of what any individual can do. So how do you address that inherent tension uh, you know, that we can't sort of expect individuals on their own to solve climate change. It will take a systemic approach. Yeah. So I, I spoke with a, um, with some researchers recently, and they used the word norm entrepreneurs. <laughs> so people who go out and change social norms about what is acceptable, what is desirable. And, you know, it's very hard to say, does policy come first or does, you know, social norms come first? Um, and I, I think the answer, of course, is that there's a feedback loop. And, it's, I think people attribute too much power to policy uh, and not enough to, you know, what they can do um, in their own community. And uh, it's certainly not one or the other, but I would say the emerging consensus, the emerging sort of evidence that I'm seeing is that there's far more powerful, you know, more power at home, at the kitchen table, in your community than we think. And that ultimately is going to be not the solution, but one big piece of the puzzle going forward. All right. Well, Washington Post climate advice columnist, Michael Korn, thank you so much for joining us on State of the Bay and providing all these very helpful tips on what people can do to reduce their carbon footprint. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. And all the resources that Michael mentioned can be found on our website, State of the Bay on KALW.org. And coming up after this short break, we're going to talk to the director of a new documentary about a pro basketball star whose controversial views ultimately cost him his career in the NBA. So stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind, and I'm here with Jocelyn Rose Lyons, director of a new documentary called Stand, about basketball phenom Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, 
who was driven out of the NBA because of controversial stances he took as a Muslim. It's an incredible story, an excellent documentary. And thank you so much, Jocelyn, for coming here and coming on to State of the Bay and talking about this new documentary. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really am honored and grateful to be on your show. Well, Jocelyn, we understand it's your first feature-length film, and it is really compelling. It, as I mentioned, profiles the life and pro-basketball career of Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. And you interview basketball greats like Shaquille O'Neal, who said that watching Mahmoud was like watching God play basketball. And it truly is amazing. I think many uh, listeners, or some listeners, may remember him originally as Chris Jackson uh, coming up out of Gulfport, Mississippi, where he grew up. Can you describe a bit about uh, his early years? Because it really sets the stage for the, the whole story that you tell. Yes. Um, so Mahmoud, um, he grew up in, in uh, abject poverty. Um, if you watch the film, we, we do show um, B-roll of kind of his neighborhood and his community. And we also revisited that area of Gulfport during production. And with it, we were able to capture some original footage as well. Um, but he he came from very difficult beginnings, um, a lot of prejudice in his town. And um, uh, as you see in the film, and many know of his story, uh, the KKK ended up burning his home to the ground, the, the home that he was building for his family. Um, this happened, uh, you know, after his stand. Um, but yes, his early years were very challenging. Um, he was born with Tourette syndrome. He didn't know his father. Um, his mother wouldn't tell him who his father was. Um, so he had a, a lot of um, very turbulent, um, a, a very turbulent early life um, and, and was able to just completely transform all of it into his ultimate hero's journey, how I see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you mentioned the Tourette syndrome. A lot of people, I think, aren't familiar with that. He didn't even know what it was when he had it. He, I think it was almost uh, heading to college when uh, he finally was diagnosed with it. Can you just describe what Tourette syndrome is and, and how it affected his playing? Because it, it did so in a, what I found to be a very surprising way. Yes, it um, it's interesting. It's a neurological disorder and it affects um, motor skills and it also can create um, obsessive compulsive disorders. And uh, that actually lent itself to Mahmoud's ability to shoot, uh, <laughs> uh, shoot amazingly well. <laughs> so mm -hmm. he he had uh, explained it in the film, and there was a moment um, when I was reviewing a transcript actually, and and he had said that you know um, he finds when he pushes himself to the point of exhaustion, uh, he finds peace. And he explained that it's it's like this freedom from his Tourette syndrome when he's just in it and he's so exhausted physically and so focused mentally on the sport itself and on the technique itself and on the game itself that he's free of his Tourette's. So he lives for those moments and he explains that in the film and that actually inspired an entire Verite setup of uh, B-roll that I filmed of him in slow motion um, in a basketball gym that I shot um, uh, to kind of uh, conceptualize and visualize that um, that idea that he finds that peace and that freedom from his Tourette syndrome in those moments. So all of that to say, yes, the the, the sport itself was really a vehicle um, for him to overcome 
and actually use the Tourette syndrome to his advantage. The OCD um, in and of itself was something that lent itself very well to his shooting skills. Mm-hmm. Well, and and pretty heartbreaking when his mom basically confesses that you know she got upset with him for some of his OCD tendencies without understanding uh, until he was officially diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome that that was the explanation for why he was like that as a child. And uh, his relationship with his mother is one of the really more powerful aspects of the story. And there was a, a really moving as- uh, part of the documentary where, as you mentioned, his mother who had since died of cancer, never told him who his father was and that that question always haunted him. And I want to play a clip now from the film where he talks about this. Basketball for me kind of, and I know it sounds weird, it kind of took the place of my father because I spent so much time on the court. Yeah, I want to take care of my mother. I want to take care of people. I want to take care of my family. But I was like, maybe if I become so great, That what I'm doing, that whoever he is will want to know me and be a part of my life. So I had a chip on my shoulder. Well, it's a really powerful, I think the most powerful moment in, in the in the film. And later on, he meets with a, a genealogist who tells him he's actually from a prominent family in Gulfport, Mississippi, and that there were basketball players in his family. And then he meets members of his of the paternal side of his family, the folks that, you know, he, he didn't even realize he was uh, related to. Did he ever find out who his father was? No, actually, uh, the genealogist um, still... Uh, working on that technically uh but yes we we during production we were not able to uncover that for him or for the story so it was something we spent a great deal of time on the producers put in a great deal of time and effort into that and unfortunately didn't yield the answer but one thing it did do for me as the director um is that you know sometimes in storytelling we as long as we, my approach is I like to get out of my own way as an artist and and just be a vessel for the story to come through me. And I believe that storytelling stories will tell you what they need to say if you just listen. And I wanted to tell that story in a very linear way. I wanted the genealogist to find out who his father was for him first and, you know, for the the film as well. um, So that there would be completion there. And uh, when we couldn't get that answer, I realized that there was a a deeper message and there was a deeper answer that uh, was being revealed. So I uh, sent Mount Mood back to Gulfport. Uh, We flew him out, um, production, uh, we got a local crew to cover the shot list that I had in mind. And one of the shots that I conceptualized was that Mount Mood would visit his mother's gravesite. And um, essentially that shot became kind of the button on that story beat in act three it was how i created or how the story kind of found peace in the same way that i was hoping that we would find it for him through the genealogist we were able to find it by him maybe finding a new level of peace and and healing by um with his mother um Mm -hmm. because she never did reveal that truth to him um and he wanted to know his whole life so as he said in the film she you know she she basically died with it on her heart and never told him. So um, in some ways that part of the story ended in a different way than I had imagined, 
um, but I think in a much more meaningful way for him and his life and, and hopefully for the story as, as well. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the controversies that ensued in his playing career. In the 1990s, he began questioning his Christian faith. His coach gave him a copy of Malcolm X's autobiography. He decides to convert to Islam in 1991, change his name from Chris Jackson, Chris Jackson to Mahmoud Abdul Rauf. Uh, can you talk about what happened next and, and why he became mired in so much controversy? Yes. I mean, if, if whomever is listening, spoiler alert, if you haven't heard about his, his life or watched the film stand, I certainly would encourage all of you to watch it on Showtime. Um, but, uh, you know, he converted to Islam and, and as with many religions, you know, we, m- any spiritual practice really, it's, it's a process of integration and, and figuring out how to interpret the teachings and what, what is best, um, so he was figuring that out, and and one thing he found was that he didn't agree with um, the message and um, the meaning behind standing for the anthem. Mm-hmm. So he did not. Um, instead, he prayed, um, and he explains in, in depth in the film. Uh, so I'll let you all who have not mm-hmm. seen it wait until you watch it. So I'm not mm-hmm. summarizing the movie, but. Yep. Uh, Yes, I mean, I think that his stand was the the source of at the crux of the controversy that we all saw that the media took a really strong position on at that time in '96, and um, and this was uh, you know a very turbulent time for him to have converted to Islam because what happened later obviously was 9/11 and not much mm-hmm. later after that. So we didn't have social media at that time, and I I really believe that Mahmoud's message would have been a movement had it happened today and had he had social media behind his message mm-hmm. um like Colin Kaepernick and like a lot of the mm-hmm. athletes that have taken a stand now that they can use their social media platforms and all of the available tools for media outlets now mm-hmm. to their advantage and and back in 1996 we were um he was limited um, to television, mm-hmm. pretty much, and radio. And and that is yeah. why I also, as the director, used these 1990s-style television sets as the motif um, in the film throughout, just as a representation of kind of the outlet, mm-hmm. the only outlet that, that really was controlling his narrative. Yeah, at the time. Well, now we've got a new narrative with this documentary, and we're just about out of time. But real quick, what are some of the local connections here? It looks like some of the scenes were filmed in Oakland, and you're from Oakland. You interviewed some Golden State Warriors, Coach Steve Kerr, Steph Curry. Can you talk very briefly about the local connections? Yes, uh, the Golden State Warriors were incredible. Uh, Steph Curry, uh, obviously, is in the film, and Steve Kerr. uh, Golden State uh, Entertainment provided support, production support throughout the project's production, um, which was immensely uh, useful for me creatively because I had imagined uh, Mahmoud uh, attending a game, which we were able to do, a Warriors game, and film it. Um, and that is how the film ends. So I'd love for you all that have not seen it to see um, what he does at that game uh, during the national yeah. anthem. But, well, uh, but yeah. So Jocelyn, thank you so much for summarizing. I'd love to chat more. We're unfortunately out of time, but Jocelyn Rose Lyons, director of the new documentary, now streaming on Showtime. Stan, thank you so much for joining us on State of the Bay. Thanks for having me.
And that's all the time we have for State of the Bay this week. We want to thank everyone for joining us and being part of the conversation. You can always learn more on our webpage at KLW.org. If you have questions or comments, email us at any time. And join us next Monday. We'll be back for another State of the Bay. Tonight's show was produced by Ann Harper and Wendy Holcomb, engineered by David Kwan, and D Minor was our board operator. I'm Ethan Elkind. Good night, and thanks so much for listening.